We all learn to talk by listening to others, right? We all learn to talk by listening to others. This is how we learn. Um, the other day, Caitlin and I were sharing a meal with Aaron and Katie. Aaron, I hope it's, it's all right to tell the story. Uh, there's, there's no real details, but we were, we were sharing a meal with Aaron and Katie and Isabella and Isaac. We were all eating and chatting and, and hanging out, and it was great. And there were some moments in the midst of the conversation where, Aaron, you, you said something. I, I don't remember what it was. But right after that, Isabella just blurted out the exact same thing, verbatim, just said it again, right? And we all laughed a bit, and we said, oh, you got to watch out what you say around kids. And then we went on. But right, if any of you who've raised children have probably had an experience like this, right? You say something, and then your kid says it right back at you. Oh, wow. Um, or, you know, if, if um, when you were a child, you probably did this with your parents, right? We all learn to talk by listening to others. This is, this is how it works. And the same thing is true of prayer. We learn how to pray by listening. And, and this is why we regularly read from the Psalms when we gather to worship. And, and also one of the reasons why we often return to the Psalms during the summer. Uh, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. They're the prayer book of the Bible. So when we read them, we become like little children sitting at a dinner table listening to others talking so that we might join in and learn how to talk ourselves. When we read the Psalms, we become worshipers. Um, hey, there they are. Um, we become worshipers, listening to others, pray, and learning how to pray ourselves. Uh, there's a church leader named Eusebius of Caesarea who lived in the 3rd and 4th century, and he was writing about Psalm 17, which we're about to read, and one of the things that he said about it was, we speak fully and clearly when we use words taken from divine scripture. We speak fully and clearly when we use words taken from divine scripture. In other words, scripture itself, particularly the Psalms, teaches us how to speak fully and clearly as we pray. And so my hope is that as we read and reflect on the Psalms, we might become more deeply a people of prayer. So a couple years ago, we started with Psalm 1 in the summertime and went a few weeks and then put a bookmark. Last summer, we made it to Psalm 16. So today we'll continue with Psalm 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear me, Lord. My plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people tried to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. 
Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts, and their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down, and they now surround me, with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Rise up, Lord. Confront them. Bring them down. With your sword, rescue me from the wicked. By your hand, save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it, and may there be leftovers for their little ones. As for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word and for the gift of prayer to be able to come to you and share our hearts and listen to your words. God, I pray as we consider the words of scripture together today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 17 is a prayer. But what kind of prayer is it? What kind of prayer is it? I mean, on the surface, this prayer can feel kind of uncomfortable for a number of reasons, right? In some ways, Psalm 17 feels a little bit like a prayer that Jesus told us not to pray. The prayer of the self-righteous Pharisee, who said, thank you, O God, that I am not like those evildoers over there, right? I fast, I tithe, I do all kinds of good, right? I mean, that's kind of what this psalm feels like on the surface when we first read it. The first verse, the psalmist says, my lips are without deceit. And then in verse 3, my mouth has not transgressed. In verse 5, my feet have not stumbled. And then towards the end of the psalm, there's this finger pointing, right, at evildoers. Over and over again, the psalm feels a bit like moral bragging. Look at how good I am. Look at how awesome I am. You know, almost like the psalmist is saying, hey, God, you have to listen to me because I'm righteous. And as much as we know that that's not right, that that's not the way that things should be, I think we often think and act this way. A lot of times we think that we have to get our act together in order to pray. Or uh, we may think, you know, life is challenging and prayer doesn't seem to be working or doing anything. And so there must be something wrong with me, right? The prayer is not working because I'm not righteous. And this is what Job's friends thought. 
Job was suffering and lamenting, and they all say, well, Job, you must have sinned badly to end up like this. And on the surface, that's kind of what this psalm sounds like, a psalm of self-righteous entitlement. But I think if we look at its context, we might see it a little bit more clearly. And so what kind of psalm is it? Well, if you look at the heading in the text, it says it is a prayer of David. A prayer of David, right? The psalm doesn't indicate a specific event in David's life that it might be speaking to, but I think we, we could consider David's story and, and maybe find some context in that. So we read about David's beginnings in 1 Samuel, right? He comes on the scene, this scrappy young boy who's watching sheep in the fields and playing the lyre. You know, it's like a guitar or something, singing, that kind of thing. And then he first gains some notoriety whenever he's summoned to play music for King Saul. And so, you know, Saul's having a bad time, and someone's like, hey, I know this guy who plays really great music. It will set your mind and heart at ease. And so he's like, bring him to me, right? So David shows up, he sings, and Saul experiences peace. And it's good. And so that's his first notoriety, but then his fame skyrockets after this face-off with Goliath. In fact, it skyrockets so much that Saul goes from being comforted by David's music to feeling threatened by David's fame. And from this point on, uh, Saul is suspicious of David. There's this story where David is back playing music again, and Saul tries throwing a spear to, you know, nail him against the wall, right? Very subtle uh, of Saul. Um, and David darts out of there and gets away. And from this point on, David's on the run, and Saul is pursuing him. Now remember, Saul is not just an individual who's jealous of David. Saul is the king of Israel, and he has all kinds of political power and military forces at his disposal. And so Saul is pursuing David in all of these ways, right? He's using his political power to try to destroy David's reputation, spread bad word about him, and he uses his soldiers, an army, to try to capture him or kill him. And I think it's very likely that these are the circumstances out of which this psalm arises. Saul's corrupt pursuit of David and David's desperate need for deliverance. And if that's the context, well, then we can see that this psalm is not about self-righteousness, but rather it's a psalm about injustice. And that changes things. Because in ancient Israel, who's in charge of establishing justice? the king, right? The king is in charge of establishing justice, and yet in this case, it is precisely the king who is corrupting justice. It's precisely the king who is bringing about injustice. And so in Psalm 17, David takes his case to a higher court. He goes to the true king, 
the King of kings, who is the Lord. And so it begins, hear me, Lord, my plea is just. You see, this psalm is ultimately about justice. David rightly knows that his enemy's pursuit is unjust. And so he brings his case to God, trusting that he will be found innocent and his enemies will be found guilty. David trusts that God is a righteous judge. This is what he says in verse 2. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. God is a righteous judge. God sees what is right. God is not corrupt like Saul was then, or like many authorities in our lives might be today. God alone is righteous. God alone is just. And so David goes before him to ask for justice. And what happens when you go before a judge? I mean, think about court. If you've seen Law and Order or, you know, one of those kinds of shows, what happens when you're in court? Well, you give your testimony. You start there, but after you do that, well, then you get cross-examined, right? Someone comes up and says, well, let's dig into this testimony a little bit. Let's see if it stands up. And that is exactly the process that David invites in verse 3. He says, examine me. Find that I have planned no evil. My mouth is not transgressed. He's saying, my, my testimony is true. I'm, I'm here in, in court, pleading to God, and my case is just. I, I'm speaking the truth. And then as the psalm progresses, he moves from giving testimony about himself to giving testimony about his enemies. And so in verse 10, he says, they close up their callous hearts, and their mouths speak with arrogance. And then in verse 13, he asks God to deal with them. He says, rise up, Lord, confront them, and bring them down. You see, all throughout this psalm, it's, it's a prayer for justice. You know, as I thought about this courtroom scene that's kind of unfolding in this psalm, it reminded me of the courtroom scene in the classic novel To Kill a Mockingbird, right? If you've ever read that book, seen that movie, seen that play, uh, you know, it's been uh, turned into all kinds of different uh, things, and it's such a, a classic and, and powerful story. Uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird, Tom Robinson is on trial for something that he did not do. And so when it's his turn to get up and share testimony uh, with the judge, he, he begins to share. And in the course of this, he is asked, did you harm Maella Yule in any way? Did you harm her in any way? And he responds, I did not, sir. I did not, sir. And this is what's being said in the psalm. It's not a self-righteous proclamation. It's an honest testimony. You know, I, I am being chased by the, the very king of Israel, and I have done nothing wrong. 
I'm innocent here. They're the ones who are wrong. Help me out, God, right? This is what he's doing. Not self-righteous proclamation, but an honest testimony. Now, Tom Robinson tragically did not get justice from Judge Taylor in To Kill a Mockingbird. But in this psalm, David is confident that he will. Because he's confident in God as a righteous judge. The psalm ends in verse 15. As for me, I will be vindicated. and I will see your face. You see, David is confident because he's confident in God. And so this is the context out of which this psalm arises, right? And it gives us a little bit more insight into what exactly is going on. Uh, but as followers of Jesus, we are invited even more deeply into this psalm. Because this psalm is called a prayer of David, but Jesus is often called the son of David. And so I think we would do well as we reflect on this psalm to imagine the words of this psalm coming from Jesus himself. How would Jesus pray Psalm 17? What do we see when we see this coming from him? Because you see, Jesus also faced injustice from jealous authorities. Right? The chief priests unjustly arrested Jesus and put him through what really was a false trial. And then the Roman authorities took Jesus into custody and kind of just followed the whim of the people who were shouting, crucify him. So just imagine Jesus praying Psalm 17 in the midst of that. In the midst of that unjust trial. In the midst of his wrongful crucifixion. Hear me, Lord. My plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my cry. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Jesus truly can say that, can't he? They close up their callous hearts. Their mouths speak with arrogance. They've tracked me down. Now they surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground, right? They, they really did do that to Jesus. When they confronted him in the garden, threw all kinds of accusations at him and sent him to a cross. But then this is where Jesus begins to challenge Psalm 17. Because instead of praying for his enemies to be destroyed, what does Jesus pray? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, instead of judgment, Jesus prays for mercy. In verse 13 of the psalm, David prays for God to save him with the sword. But if we imagine Jesus praying this verse, the sword gets redefined. Because instead of the sword of a soldier, which leads to destruction, Jesus prays with the sword of the Spirit, which leads to transformation. 
which leads to forgiveness and renewal. Instead of judgment, Jesus prays for mercy. And then, what about the confidence that David has towards the end of the psalm? Remember, I will be vindicated. David is confident that he's going to be delivered, but what happens to Jesus? He ends up crucified on the cross. And yet, even on the cross, Jesus could confidently pray. Verse 15, I will be vindicated, and I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. On the cross, Jesus breathed out and he died. But on the third day, he woke back up. And today, now, he is seated on the throne at the Father's right hand. He is truly satisfied with seeing the Father's likeness. And so this psalm is a prayer about justice, but ultimately it's a prayer about Jesus. We can see that when we imagine him praying it in his own moment of trial. And so as as we come to a close here, I want to ask this question to us. Uh, What does this psalm teach us about prayer? Right? If we learn how to pray by listening to prayers, by, by listening to the songs, well, what does this psalm teach us about prayer? I want to offer three things. First, we see that prayer is a place of examination. Prayer is a place of examination. In verse 3, the psalmist invites God to probe his heart invites God to examine him. And this is what prayer should be. Prayer is not a place of perfection, but rather a place of honesty. Prayer is not a place of perfection, but a place of honesty. You see, sometimes, like the psalm, we may be able to run to God in prayer and say, God, I've been following you. I I really have, and it's been hard. Help me out, right? Sometimes we can pray that, but other times we need to run to God in prayer and say, God, I have failed to follow you. I haven't been following you. I've been running every direction but you. You see, whatever the case, prayer is a place honestly examine our lives in the presence of God, to honestly reflect on the state of our heart. Another well-known psalm, Psalm 139, puts it this way, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting.
Examine me, right? Help me to follow you. This is one of the first things that we see about prayer as we look at the psalm. Prayer is a place to honestly reflect on our life and the state of our hearts and ask for forgiveness and ask for guidance on the way forward. The second thing, prayer is a place where we bring our enemies. Prayer is a place where we bring our enemies. David throughout this psalm, makes it pretty clear that he is upset with his enemies. He's angry with them, and he wants destruction for them, right? He puts it all out there. But the point is that he doesn't lift up his sword against them, but rather entrusts them to God's sword, which may very well be the sword of forgiveness and restoration, rather than a sword of destruction. One of the stories amidst Saul's unjust pursuit of David uh, demonstrates this really powerfully, right? Uh, you may be familiar with this. David is hiding in the back of a cave with some of his guys, and they're, you know, staying hidden. And while they're there, lo and behold, Saul comes wandering in to relieve himself, right? That's what it says. And in that moment, David, I mean, he could easily creep up right behind him and get rid of him, destroy him. And that would be the end of all of his troubles, right? Done with Saul. But instead, he does move forward and he just chops off a, a little corner of Saul's robe. And after Saul leaves the cave, David makes himself known. And he says, I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord judge between you and me. So prayer is the place where we bring our enemies. Rather than letting bitterness, anger, frustration corrupt our hearts, rather than seeking some kind of revenge, we entrust our enemies to God in prayer. And as we follow the way of Jesus, as we are filled with the Spirit, we may even begin to pray for their forgiveness and pray for their transformation, pray for their renewal. There are two ways to get rid of enemies. You can destroy them, you know, you can try to kill them or, or get rid of them, but a much better way of getting rid of your enemies is to make them your friend. And prayer is the place where that begins. And so prayer is a place of examination. Prayer is a place that we bring our enemies. Finally, prayer is ultimately about drawing near to God. Prayer is about drawing near to God. This is the most important thing that we see throughout Psalm 17. I mean, yes, it is about justice. It is about dealing with enemies. But underneath all of that, Psalm 17 is about seeing and trusting God. Verse 6 says, I call on you, my God, and you will answer me. Right? 
Once more, there's this utter confidence, utter trust in God. God can be trusted. I'm calling on you because I know you're going to answer me. I'm calling on you because I know you're going to hear me. I trust you. And then verses 7 and 8, show me the wonders of your great love. Keep me as the apple of your eye. It's not really a phrase that we use anymore. It's the pupil of your eye, that, that middle part of your eye. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Right? All of this is about drawing near to God. He says, guard me as your very own. Uh, keep watch over me. Care for me just like a mother bird who hovers over her little chicks, right, with the, with the wings. This is who God is. Show me the wonders of your great love. And then the psalm ends with what? With seeing God's face being satisfied with his likeness. This is the hope that we have. This is the ultimate purpose of prayer, to draw near to God, to be transformed by him. And so if, if this is all you get from the sermon, it's worth it. This prayer in the center of Psalm 17 I think has the potential to transform all of our lives. Verse 7, show me the wonders of your great love. Pray that prayer and open your heart to the goodness of God and everything else will follow. Show me the wonders of your great love. Because you see, dealing with sin or dealing with our enemies are secondary matters to setting our hearts on God. If we stop sinning, but we don't have our hearts set on the love of God, then we become like the self-righteous Pharisee. Ending sin is not the point. If we set our hearts on God, that'll take care of itself. Uh, you know, or if we deal with our enemies, but we don't have our heart set on God, well, then maybe we can learn to, to coexist with each other. But we won't truly be reconciled. It's only in God that we can find reconciliation, deep, true reconciliation. If we glimpse the wonders of God's great love, then everything else will follow. We will be transformed and reconciled and become a people of peace, living God's kingdom in the world. Show me the wonders of your great love. Say that. Show me the wonders of your great love. Let that be your prayer this week and be transformed by the love of God. Amen.